0: Seeing by Moonlight, a novel by M. F. Thomas and Nicholas Thurkettle, read by Thomas Viborg Thune. This is M. F. Thomas, author of the novel Seeing by Moonlight. If you're enjoying this audio version, please go to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. Fifteen. Three tests at Penemunde. The first one was unmanned, the second and third piloted. Dr. Biscoe stared out across the Baltic Sea, as he might have as a young medic sweeping and securing this hidden base over fifty years before. Our friend Egger was on the list as test pilot number three. He was pretty happy we put a stop to the tests. Alex interrupted his reverie as they continued across the countryside to an unguarded part of the base fence. But they'd already deafened him and cut out his tongue. Bisco gave him a cold look. But he was alive. He lived this long. The others didn't. All three of the America rockets failed. First two burned on the launch pad. Third one got up in the air then took off in a horizontal line and crashed. They never tracked it down. By that time our bombs were falling on them, but we found it. Alex looked at all of them and realized that here was something he might know that they did not. But they were building another rocket in Nordhausen. Do you know if that one launched? And now all... The patrol members stopped in their tracks, and it was clear that they absolutely had not known. How did you learn this? his mother asked, an edge to her voice. Elisa found a secret file room at the school. She had no idea about the rocket program, for your information. I have some of the records we took back at our hotel. From what I could see, they were assembling material in Nordhausen, "'for one more manned rocket. "'I don't know if they ever launched it.' "'But they did,' Merton Pletcher sputtered as he spoke, "'his words driven by the helpless surge of old memories "'slamming back into his thoughts. "'That was what he meant. "'It must have been, when Victor died, "'terrible new star in the heavens. "'That's what Udo claimed Victor said.' Bisco chimed in with a contrary tone. We always knew that was a possibility, but why would that be cause for a damn rush now if they managed to get a rocket up back in 1945, even a manned one? It didn't come back down and blow anything up, and whoever the man was, he obviously didn't win the war for the Germans, did he? Udo said that Victor was afraid, deathly afraid guilty about that launch. Alex kept hearing that name. Who is this Udo? He was the last man to speak with my father. Where is he? Alex's mother answered. Udo is dead. He died setting off a bomb to help free me. (music) Elisa was whimpering now. Eyes locked on the knife. Andreas had yet to move closer. Maybe he could, but the force she exerted against him was like a wind, and he was exhilarated by it. What a gift, he declared to her. I think you have never pushed against someone with such strength in your life, and it is all for me. Thank you, most beautiful one. Thank you. Were there sounds outside, stealthy feet brushing through the grass to take them? He couldn't tell, and didn't even care. His hearing seemed to have hollowed, all his senses locked and tightened around her, the fullest, most delirious consumption of her. He reached forward through the compressing, thickening air, stretching the point of the knife towards her. She could have scooted backwards in her chair, increased the space between them, forced him to struggle more. But she didn't. Did it take all her concentration to maintain this bubble of resistance? Did she not dare break her gaze? Her fear was the only thing that weakened it. When she recovered herself, The great pushing sensation seemed to double, and his arm froze in its path. The tip of the knife was less than a foot from her lovely neck, but she had ceased to look at it. Her gaze was back on Andreas, fierce and defiant. They were going to kill me, Andreas said, face twitching. I stole that death from them. I stole it for one extra day. For you, I am sure I will die, and I do not care. This is the greatest day of my life. Alex didn't need to feign exhaustion. His body and spirits had been buffeted beyond their limits. But as he and this strange extended family that called themselves the patrol, headed back for that bright blue bridge into Volgast. Alex leaned back in the back seat of the vehicle for more than just respite. He couldn't stop thinking about her. Their argument was good, that she might be safe in the custody of Philibert's hired killer. And he was Philibert's. The information the others had shared with him left no doubt in Alex's mind. "'of the old man's capacity for ruthlessness. "'But Alex was not so willing to concede the threat "'and had only one way to search for her. "'She had told him that he didn't need the ring to use the sight, "'that it focused and enhanced it, "'but that the ability was in his own mind, "'unlocked in part by her guidance and Philibert's machine. "'Now, Alex thought, Shutting his eyes would be the perfect time for that to be true. He considered that ring, whatever metal it was made of, whatever magnetism it affected that was the source for all this seeing and sensing. Alex hoped that he could hone in on it, that it would draw him to her, that he could see, that he could see a vibration in the curtain of the dimmest light, like a pulse, traveling where, not moving, just searching, like a radar, pushing out in every direction, changing orientation, waiting for a... something? A fussy, hot something far off at the periphery. No image to jump into, but something to concentrate on, to refine, to coalesce. She's in a room, in a chair, and... Alex! His mother's voice rang him back into the world, and, like a dream dribbling out of his memory, he lost the picture in seconds. Frustration boiled over. Damn it! I had her! I was starting to see her. The patrol members in the car looked warily at each other. Even Alex's mother seemed to show a new caution as she tried to acknowledge this. It is amazing. You're developing very quickly. That is good. Was she... uh, was she alive? Yes, but I don't know if she's okay. Be relieved she is alive, and save your strength. We need your abilities now. There is a mystery that has been waiting to be solved for over fifty years, and we are running out of time to solve it. They had arrived at a farm, an unremarkable place in the country outside of Volgast. It was still early morning, and things were quiet. Alex spied a John Deere tractor, out in the summer green grass, a sudden touch of Americana, perhaps providing some comfort. Pletcher killed the engine. I'll talk to him, white hair. Already Alex could see a middle-aged man approaching from the farmhouse, large-boned and well sunned, but with only little grey tangles of hair left by his ears, to match his whiskers. He met Pletcher halfway, and they shared a tight handshake, deeply familiar, though not quite warm. Another man paired behind them at the farmhouse door, an older man with a deeply bent back, descending the steps with a cane in each hand. His shoulders were still broad from a lifetime of work, but clearly the tending of the farm had passed from father to son. "'Who are they?' Alex asked his mother. They are nobody, she replied. Ordinary people to whom fate gave a choice, and they chose to help us, despite the power and terror of the enemy that stood against us, just like the owner of a little pipe shop and his son in Munich, who helped us get past the Berlin Wall and gave us shelter and hope. Wecker, Alex realized. Did I get him killed? What is happening now was set in motion long ago. Vecker lived a full life and died protecting our secrets. Alex had a hard time absolving himself of all these strange events. Do you wish I had just stayed home in Arizona? He asked his mother. She looked out the window, watching the conversation between the farmers and Pletcher. Of course I do. You don't know what a paradise that quiet little life was. Sometimes even Herbert and I can forget, go for months without talking about all of it. Once in a while we can actually think of it all as a dream. Pletcher waved at car, and everyone exited. Alex followed, wondering what it was he was about to see. The older man used the tractor rather than his legs, and the rest followed behind, making a strange, slow parade across the field, out towards a great old barn. The farmer's son seemed antsy and kept scratching at his head as he walked. Alex looked up at the sun, squinting and trying to imagine the shadow that would fall tomorrow. And what would happen then? Then, Fire and cataclysm, like the ancient tribes always feared? Surely not. Science knew there was an eclipse somewhere on the globe every couple of years. It had to be the eclipse itself. Some effect it would have, combined with something else. Something that had been almost ready. Something just one step away. He had heard those words in recent days. Just one more. One more what? What ended that sentence, and where had he heard it? His brain felt so dull and slow, and knowing there was something it couldn't retrieve filled him with frustration. A clap on his back jarred him out of his thoughts. It was Pletcher. Didn't have a chance to say, you know, back when I was pretending I hadn't seen you before. But you've grown up strong. And you look like him, too. My father? Yeah. You got your mother's features, but the way you stand when you're thinking, like just now. I know that look. It's him. All I'm thinking is that I'm just too dumb and ordinary to help out with all this. That's fair. He was afraid just that way, your father. Afraid every day but somehow he kept doing what he thought had to be done, like he just couldn't help but be good, even if it was going to cost him his life. Alex realized that the presence of such a quality, and in whom it surfaced, was just as much a mystery as the sense. Merton, don't lie to me. Was that you in our room that night, in the mask? Pletcher looked instinctively to Alex's mother, which answered Alex's question even before she gave a permissive nod in return. "'It was a hard hustle,' Pletcher admitted, "'to get out of that place alive, "'and then beat it back home before you showed up at the door.' "'What was with the hoods?' "'They're made a bit like the hat,' except the idea is to reduce the influence that people can project over us. We don't get much chance to test them, but we had so little time. We had to put everything we had into that effort, including two lives. Alex still felt shut out from the truth. For Elise? Why her? Sensing reluctance, he stopped walking and raised his voice. Wait a minute. The others paused and looked at him. Why her? And don't just say it was to keep us apart. His mother sighed, and turned to walk back to Alex. She laid a hand on his cheek, and he flinched, resistant to any distracting affection. When you are around her, you feel stronger, yes? He nodded. And you find yourself drawn to her, Even in a kind of awe. Alex couldn't hide his recognition of what she described. She continued, That was Philibert's gift too. He was magnificent. Even just to look at him, with every lesson and treatment, we lit up further and we found we drew strength from him, even when we weren't in his presence. When he was ill, but experimenting in a way that dulled his powers, you could feel it. I could feel it all the way in Arizona, even after so many years had passed, and I kept wondering if the old horror of a man would ever just die. We knew that she was born sharing this gift. There is at least something genetic to it, and we know that she will inherit the foundation and all his assets, including the school. Whether she is aware of his true purpose yet or not, he is preparing her to take his place. We need to know if she could be convinced otherwise. Alex felt heat under his brow. Well, you picked an awful way to do it. She knows you're the ones who bombed the temple. You're her mortal enemies. She's not going to hear your case now. We're here, Biscoe cut in. The barn was even larger than Alex's first guess. Andreas was leaning down now, face leering ever closer to hers. He was greedy for every pore, every glistening tear on her face. When he had first seen her image, In that old, innocent picture back in the prison, she had represented merely opportunity, freedom from captivity, license to take his pleasure from the world once again. When had it changed? When had she started to consume him? It had happened long before he had been aware of it. It was a sign of something more fundamental inside himself. An engine he could barely glimpse. And he was so grateful to her for that sign, because it had never come from anyone or anything else. He thought he knew himself completely, and she had upended it all. He worshipped that power. Without even blinking, she spat in his face. Hot fury exploded in him. Indignation and shame and the deepest sense of violation overrode all his thoughts, and suddenly all he could picture were a thousand ways to lash back, a thousand futile violences that would never, ever restore what she had spoiled in one petty. He looked down and realized he was halfway across the room from her again. In those seconds, where he was not master of himself, his body had staggered backwards. Even as visions of revenge continued to pulse vividly behind his eyes, he recovered himself and found new reasons to admire her. She gave back nothing, but held her willful expression alive and fighting him still. But he had tested his means, and they had worked. You make me angry, but it passes, it is a moment, my love is stronger, and it is perpetual. And again he stepped towards her. This was not a barn that was visited often. It was piled with crates and rotting bales, and the air was grey with must. The younger farmer tugged at a rope, swinging open a hinged door in the roof, and a great rectangle of sunlight plunged in to fill the space. Then, sniffling and rubbing his arm against his nose, he trudged to a pile of bales and started to tug them off, one at a time. He paused for only a moment, to look challengingly over his shoulder at Alex. Alex got a message and went to help. At last, their work revealed a cellar hatch sealed by an old iron lock. The older farmer leaned one cane against the door and reached in his pocket for a key. The lock popped after a scraping crank, and below was a ladder into a concrete pit. Alex thought of a swimming pool or a Cold War bomb shelter. The space was long and narrow and lit only by their flashlights and the spill of sun from above. But there were no shelves, no supplies and certainly no swimming water. Just a missile. Only part of it protruded from the mound of earth, but it was massive. Just the width of the base would have been taller than a person. Its paint was flaked and mingled with dirt and decay. This chamber was perhaps thirty feet long, and by Alex's guess, the full height of the missile would easily triple that. Fletcher explained. This landed in their field, and when the Nazis came looking, they hid it. They said it just didn't look like something they should have back. Herbert piped in, And then they built this whole barn on top of it. Alex reached out a hand, suddenly compelled to touch the engine of so much death. Careful, his mother urged in a low but forceful tone. Alex's hand jumped back quite readily. Brought back to his senses, he asked, What do you need me for? Pletcher started. When we first found out about this, we got some friends in to try and open it up. But the thing is rigged with explosives. Alex found them remark oddly on the nose. Well, it's a missile, right? Fletcher shook his head. I'm not talking about payload. I mean that the damn thing is booby-trapped. If that pilot hatch ever opens, the whole thing will blow out if the hatch opens at all. So how does the pilot get out? We've never answered that question either. That's why we wanted to look inside. That's something you could do. Only you. Answers. They had lured him forward so far. He felt like he had so many fragments already yearning and nagging to unite into a picture. It was a jigsaw puzzle, Except that puzzles were a lie, because in them all the pieces usually belonged. Here he didn't know which pieces were part of the picture. But he couldn't deny what everyone around him was quietly urging. He had to do this. He turned his focus inside and felt a thousand complaints of stiffness, fatigue, and alienation surging into his mind from all over his body. They needed to be subdued and quieted. A bigger task needed to swell in his focus and replace them. He thought of the moon and Elisa's strange light and a night sky, about his father and his mother and their heroic romance, about Philibert and a dream he never realized about taking people to the stars, his people his student, his kind, his blood. The world went dark around Alex, and he moved into it, slowly, carefully, gliding along the metal skin of the missile, through the dirt, and then passing into the missile itself, hollow tubes for fire. I'm in. Alex sent the words back to his body to speak. If anyone spoke back to him, he heard only a garbled echo. Skills not yet honed. No matter. The cockpit, it's all gauges. There's no steering here, no controls, just tubes and... A moment of revulsion. But did he feel it? Was the body he left behind feeling nausea at this sight? Or was his mind simply remembering how he would react if they were connected? The lack of sensation was queasy in its own way. The pilot is here. The corpse was encased head to toe in a thick flight suit, connected by tubes to gas canisters crammed into the corners of the capsule. The head, dried and rotted, but looking more like a mummy than a skeleton, was in a classic bubble helmet, and Alex thought instantly of astronauts. And of what Elisa had said about the American space program spawning from these secret weapons of Germany. He's in some kind of spacesuit. He looked over the gas canisters. Wait, this isn't all oxygen. This one's chloroform, and this one's ether. Although he didn't know if he would have the energy to continue, Alex risked pulling back his sight to talk with the others, especially Dr. Biscoe. Chloroform and ether, that would knock someone out, right? Biscoe nodded. Depending on the mixture, it would put him in a pretty deep sleep, almost hibernation. So, if he wasn't supposed to steer it, wasn't supposed to be able to get out again, and wasn't even supposed to be awake inside, what else is there? Just one thing, just one thing. Alex suddenly had a glimpse of an answer and froze. Could it all hang together this way? Could this explain it? Just one more try, he urged, and this time he lay down on the floor to preserve energy. The passage felt simpler with each try. He breathed, quieted his racing brain and stepped out of his body and back into the missile. That helmet, that was what he wanted to see. It was indeed much stranger than an astronaut's on closer inspection. Wires and tubes trailed out of it, connected to a great bank of... It was beyond Alex's knowledge, but they looked like batteries, and now, with morbid trepidation he pushed in past the faceplate of the helmet and gazed at the face of the dead pilot. Those wires from the helmet plunged straight into the pilot's hairless head. The missile would be blind. The pilot would be asleep. There was no food, no water, only enough oxygen for a few days. But the brain would be awake. Patterns of electricity bringing us to consciousness. Those were Philibert's words. The body as a support system for electricity. Electricity that could be focused, enhanced, channeled among gifted people thousands of miles apart through the right dose of magnetism. This wasn't about putting a person in space. It was about a brain. And not just any brain, one that would be connected to a brain back on Earth, one high in the sky, one on the ground, just like, like an antenna. Alex collided back with his body. He knew what Philibert had done, and what he intended to do, and why Elisa. Elisa had to be stopped. Andreas took no indulgences now. He had his goal and that was all. His strength and will and the greatest love of his life took him forward barely an inch at a time. His knife was pointed. He would not allow her to suffer prolonged bleeding. He would put it straight into her heart. He would watch her die, watch straight into her eyes as she went. He heard a sharp noise and then felt a hard tap on his side near the ribs, and a hot, numb sensation crackled through his legs. He turned his head to the side, and, right before his body crumpled under him, he saw movement through the viewing slits in the bunker wall. Andreas lay on his back, thoughts short-circuiting with pain, but soon shock set in and he was in a cold, sweating reverie. He looked at Elisa, and the sound of the creaking door behind him vanished down an echo. The world around her was disappearing. Only her light remained. She looked away from him, and up at whomever was at the door. And her face took on the most beautiful relief and familiarity. Someone she knew had come to her rescue. Someone she loved. She was safe. Andreas' mission was complete. 16. Just out beyond the meager skin of gases that holds all life on Earth, safe from the void of space, out in the most absolute of absolute silence and emptiness there is the river it is a perpetual river that feeds itself refreshes itself and always for uncountable years to come will return to itself it is a great river of metal things that man has flung into the orbit of the earth its satellites and rocket stages Abandoned junk, a mighty space station, some of them beeping and alive, sharing data, sharing the voices of people separated by space, others simply inert and dark flotsam that will never be thought of again. When the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, it broadcasted a radio pulse everyone could hear. It could be tracked, overheard, and much of what it learned on its voyage could be gleaned by anyone paying attention. Then its orbit decayed, and it plunged and burned. When the Soviet Union launched Sputnik II, it was with more instruments, more chances to learn, and a living thing, a dog called Laika, chosen for her even temperament. They had made provisions for her to be able to eat, drink, and survive for as many as ten days before she would be euthanized with poisoned food. Instead, she died within hours of launch, both from overheating and the overwhelming terror of the experience. And the orbit of Sputnik 2 decayed, and it plunged and burned. But higher up than either of them broadcasting on no radio frequency, with no instruments, sending no signal humankind had ever imagined to search for or detect, was another piece of flotsam that was already there when they arrived. And while some day its orbit would decay, and some day the ramshackle and wildly experimental technology on board would lose its capacity, it still floated in the great river of gravity, dark, silent and undetectable. A body was inside. It was a body any conventional science would call dead, a body that had been blasted into space with no tongue, no eyes, no ears, and for those final crucial calculations of weight and space Neither arms nor legs. Monstrous surgery. Accepted voluntarily. All that remained was a brain. A brain whose tissues were refreshed by an artificial fluid. A brain whose activity no longer involved thought or memory or identity. What remained was the simplest pattern. Almost nothing in itself, but its mere presence meant everything. It was stimulated from within the capsule and enhanced by a strange metal. And from there in space, it had a purer exposure to the powerful magnetism of the moon, where some knew that more of that strange metal could be found. In precisely one aspect and no other, that Rain was now more powerful than it had ever been when dedicated to the purpose of being a person, and that same strength found its way to a pattern on the ground that vibrated in sympathy, because they were so nearly the same. Out in the black vacuum, in a dead metal shadow lost among so much junk in that river the brain of Gerfrid Lore lived on, and channeled its power into that of his brother, Philibert, who had won their last contest of strength in order to stay on earth. Each brother had been ready to make this eternal gift to the other. They had never spoken this pact aloud. They did not need to. They were twins. Purchase a copy of Seeing by Moonlight, visit Amazon or any online bookstore. Seeing by Moonlight, a novel by M. F. Thomas and Nicholas Thurkettle. Read by Thomas Viborg Thune.